0: I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have with me Jeff Deist. If you don't know who Jeff Deist is, welcome to the Liberty Movement, because you probably already know who he is if, you were, if you're not new to the Liberty Movement. He was the president of the Mises Institute for 10 years, and he's now in the process of transitioning to General Counsel for Monetary Metals. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Doug. So, you have a new book out called A Strange Liberty Politics Drops Its Pretenses, which I've been reading at, and I have thoroughly enjoyed your take on a handful of things. And I want to start with my favorite one, which is what seems to be the death of democracy. Maybe it's a slower death than we might want, but I just want to ask you over the past maybe decade or so, I mean, you've been president of the Media Institute for a decade. You've seen a lot of changes happen in the liberty movement and also in America, in our culture, in our global politics. What do you think the status of democracy was, you know, a decade ago and has that changed and how has that changed in your mind? Well, it's interesting. I think democracy, so-called, has dropped a lot of its pretenses amongst the political
1: class. And if you look at the news just this week, you'll see more and more of these incursions into state houses by protesters, where you know a group of angry people enter the state capitol chanting, shouting, maybe even enter the legislative chamber and make their displeasure known with some bill that's being passed or not passed. And if you watch these protests, and some of them get a little uneasy, a little violent, police are involved, that sort of thing, you see quite clearly that people don't really believe in democracy. They talk about it a lot, and they claim to believe in it a lot, but they don't really believe in it because when it doesn't go their way, they want to go in and make a bunch of noise and agitate and even get physical, get kinetic. And so there used to be a pretense amongst our democratic political class that would say, hey, look, guys, democracy is legitimacy, because democracy means consent. Democracy means you have some sort of input in crafting the rules under which you have to live as imposed by government. Well, that's not really true. We all know that's not really true. To the extent it's true at all, it's only true at the most local level. And in any kind of mass democracy, a country of 330 million people voting on, God help us, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. that's not meaningful consent to anything. But more importantly, this idea that democracy is sacred. Hillary Clinton used to say that. I mean, she is just such an absolute monster for her to say that when she has been slithering around behind the scenes for decades now, undermining all kinds of things that people actually want. They've sort of dropped the pretense that, hey, look, everybody, democracy means we all vote and we come up with some sort of consensus or compromise down the middle And the far left and the far right, neither one of them gets what they want, but down the middle, we all get some of what we want, and then we sort of live with each other. Uh Well, we know now that since we're not in second grade anymore watching after-school specials, that that doesn't happen at all. Nobody gets what they want except for a permanent, entrenched, bureaucratic political class, a managerial class, which has grown by leaps and bounds not only within government, but also in corporate America, within academia throughout the 20th century. So... Both the left and the right are deeply unhappy. (laughs) There's not some happy compromise. But the political class sort of enriches itself and feeds parasitically off of this unhappiness and grows its own power. And so democracy is just a pretense. It's just a pretense for state power. And before we go too far here, I must say that this is a left-wing project. I don't think the left and the right are equally bad. I think the left is far worse Than the right in America, both in terms of what they actually believe and their ability to impose those beliefs on us. So I don't like it when, on any sort of libertarian podcast, you hear this wishy-washy. Well, we're neither left nor right. It's like, oh, okay. But (laughs) nonetheless, the right has not served us well. Certainly, the Republican Party hasn't served anybody well. Right. And the idea that we still give lip service to democracy when it's so clear—if Donald Trump won a clear, let's say, two million vote popular victory as well as an Electoral College victory. The left would just say it was still illegitimate because of disinformation or Fox News or the Koch brothers or the Russians, whatever it might be. I mean, look at Brexit. Brexit had over 70% voter turnout. And it won clearly by several percentage points. I mean, and yet Brexit has been endlessly attacked as undemocratic. I mean, we don't really believe in democracy.
0: (laughs) It's really crazy to me that that is sort of an open ethos on the left, that like we believe that democracy is great until we don't get our way. I want to ask you, though, why is it that you think that the left and the right are not equally bad? And is that just a matter of the fact that the left kind of has the cultural hegemony right now and it just feels worse?
1: Well, it's because the left dominated the 20th century, and so the left is in power. The left controls government, the left controls academia, the left controls business in corporate America, the left controls culture and the arts, the left controls, you know, all mainstream media, the left controls religious organizations top to bottom. So first and foremost, it's just a matter of progressives won the 20th century. Conservatives didn't. Conservatives just backpedaled. And, <laughs> But more importantly, I mean, yes, I think the average conservative, now I don't want to talk about the Republican party. That's a separate thing. That's a gang engaged in turf wars, sure. but yeah. the average conservative person, if you talk to him or her, they will understand that there are spheres of human life that government shouldn't be involved with. I mean, they will sort of understand that conceptually. They may be terrible on Ukraine or something. They may be terrible on Abraham Lincoln or Social Security or whatever it might be. But nonetheless, you can sit down with them and say, hey, look, you know, we don't need government to run society. It doesn't need to be the chief organizing principle. But now the left has not only absolutely absorbed the idea that government is the central organizing principle, now they've gone beyond that into identitarianism on such a scale that they've just become unhinged. And so both in terms of the power they wield and in terms of their core beliefs, I mean, liberalism's out the window. I think the left is worse in those two senses.
0: Yeah, no, I'm inclined to agree with you. I'm not quite as confident that if, for instance, there were a red wave that simply lasted for the next, say, several decades of some kind, that we would be necessarily better. We would probably be better in some ways and worse in others. I mean, obviously, that's just a you know a hypothetical or a, <laughs> a counter, what's the word, when you can't actually go back and see what would have happened if Hitler didn't, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things like counterfactual. Counterfactual. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So there's a little bit of like, well, okay, maybe it would have gone that way. I mean, there are a handful of things that you can predict. You know, if Hillary had gotten elected, the left wouldn't have complained about the same thing she did that Donald Trump did or something like that. But outside of that, it's pretty clear to me that they're both going to be bad if they're going to be ruling over us, which again, obviously leads to the question well, if neither the left nor the right or anybody in power ought to be ruling over us, you said something earlier about there's nothing about democracy that's meaningful as soon as it gets pretty much away from localism. And so I have often said, in sort of a funny way, the localer the better, because that represents the most accurate version of, to quote the declaration, we the people. Would you agree with that? Like the localer the better, like that's where we ought to be focusing any sort of energies with respect to finding liberty? Well, absolutely, to the extent, We want
1: to have a system of government that I think subsidiarity, a huge Catholic principle, by the way, is key. Federalism was not a joke for the first maybe 100 years of this country's existence. Federalism was real. And more importantly, it is a release valve for all of this friction, all of this heartburn between Americans on so-called social issues, right? Why do we need one set of abortion rules for the entire country decided by a handful Of Supreme Court justices? Why do we need one set of gun rules? Why do we need the same gun rules for a crowded street in midtown Manhattan as we do for a vast wild landscape in Alaska somewhere? I think the answer is we don't. And I certainly would love to offer folks on the left the bargain of saying you can have much more of what you want here and now as long as you're willing to do that more at the state level than the federal level. Yeah, I'm afraid most progressives, unfortunately, would not take that deal, though, because they feel like they're going to win the whole thing. So why give up any retrograde deplorable states? And moreover, <laughs> a lot of folks on the left have a savior complex where they think it's up to them to save the poor people of Florida from Ron DeSantis or whatever it might be. So that's hard to overcome as well. Yes,
0: right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had Ryan McMakin on a few months ago talk about this and he brought up something about the anti-secessionist mindset is basically the flip side of the coin of colonialism which is quite ironic because the left is they're going apoplectic about oh we need to get rid of colonialism and stop all of it and I'm like well so can we leave (laughs) no you can't we need to have you (laughs) control you (laughs) well and we forget we tend to think those of
1: us who are non interventionist critics of US foreign policy, we sometimes forget that DC is just as imperial with respect to the fifty states as it yeah, is right. Yeah. With respect to Yemen or Afghanistan or whatever. That point is sometimes lost.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I hadn't thought of it as being a point of anti colonialism to say that you are in favor of, at least in theory, secession, right? Like it's one thing to say, well, we ought to. It's another to say it, that states have a right to do this or people have a right to do this. And it was really eye-opening when and it was just in the conversation. I was like, oh, my goodness, you're totally right. So this whole question of being able to be self determinate you actually talk about this in your book. I'll let you start with what you define self-determination. It's not simply like states' rights, self-determination. You explain it a little bit more deeply than that.
1: Well, unfortunately, secession and the whole concept of states' rights in the U.S. is always going to be bound up contextually with the Civil War. Yeah. It's just an inescapable part of U.S. history, slavery. And so it's very, very tough here. But people in Europe, for example, the Catalonians, they view this idea very differently. But the bitter pill that everyone has to swallow is against universalism. I mean, everybody wants to imagine that their political program or their ideological viewpoint or even their understanding of human nature is absolutely universal and ought to apply everywhere all the time. And I think that's a very unfortunate mindset. I think that's what leads to a lot of conflict. And I think that's at the root of a lot of American mistakes over the decades, centuries even, in terms of our foreign policy, exporting democracy, making the world safer democracy, as Woodrow Wilson coined, with some help from Edward Bernays. But <laughs> you know, more importantly, is just self-determination is the ability to live free of government interference locally to the extent possible. And so if you go back and read Mises, he wrote quite a bit on what we would call the old idea of political liberalism. Really, in the interwar years, he wrote a book called Liberalism. And before that, he wrote a book called Nation, State, and Economy between the two world wars. And, you know, he really talked at length about political minorities, particularly linguistic minorities. In Europe, You coming out of a patchwork in the 1800s into the 1900s, you really saw, you know, Germany was never Germany. It was 18 different things at one point or more than that. So he really worried about bringing together unnatural political boundaries. And within those boundaries would be all kinds of ethnic or linguistic or other kinds of minorities, and that they would be subsumed they would lose out politically because they weren't the majority voting bloc. So as much as he was a small D Democrat, he also understood that the release valve for tensions in a society was political breakups, the idea of the decentralized polities, the idea of self-determination down to even the local level wherever possible. Now that's in practice oftentimes very, very difficult. Governments tend to not want to give up tax cattle or land or whatever it might be. But nonetheless, he laid out the blueprint for real liberalism. And that was self-determination, you know, trade. Trade ameliorates the other tensions between borders. And then, of course, laissez-faire at home. So we understand what it takes to make a healthy, prosperous society. We just lack the political will to do it. There's no big secret here as to how to run a country, it's actually pretty obvious. And it was certainly proven to an extent in the 20th century. But two problems come to mind. The first is that the kind of liberalism that Mises envisioned was never fully implemented anywhere. It was only partially implemented. And even where it was partially implemented, it didn't last. And that's, I think, the story of the United States, story of some Western European countries. So it didn't last. And here we are living in a very, very illiberal 2023, and you ask yourself, what is equipped to defeat this? Is liberalism itself equipped to defeat this? And of course, we've seen a lot of new critiques on the right from people like Patrick Deneen and Yoram Mazzoni and Paul Gottfried and other people who were like, hey, look, liberalism cannot defeat illiberalism. And I think that's a conversation that's pretty powerful. I'm not sure I agree, but
0: nonetheless, here we are. We're a long way from Mises' interwar years. Yeah, well, for sure we are. How do you define liberalism here? Because there's that also is intertwined a little bit with the idea of universalism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are universal aspects to humanity, the idea that we all need food and shelter and sustenance. We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected or recognized for our humanity. I mean, we could say there are universal truths that cut across Eastern and Western philosophies, that cut across all religions that cut across all worldviews that apply to a Buddhist as much as to a Western atheist, you know, that sort of thing. But when it comes to political universalism, I think we're talking about something very, very different. And libertarians have these goofy ideas about aggression or property rights that would just be absolutely stupefying to a lot of folks in China, for example. And so this idea that we need to have craft sort of one set of rules for everybody and this is the social democracy project this is neoliberalism this is what western leaders believe that we need sort of one form of government for the whole world and until that is achieved these hinterlands will be oppressed they won't have yeah. they won't have the appropriate or meaningful protections for women for minorities for lgbt folks whatever it might be sure. they don't have enough for housing and food and education and You know, the whole panoply of a socially democratic welfare state. So I think universalism is a dangerous mindset. I think it's bunk. And I think it's done a lot of harm to liberty because when it comes right down to it, whether you like it or not, people define liberty very, very differently. I define it as freedom from state coercion. And taken to its extreme, you know, that means no state. Most people define freedom in a much different sense. They define it in sort of a personal or lifestyle sense, free from all these social prohibitions Uh and the freedom from judgment. But they also define it in terms of positive rights, you know, freedom from having to worry about your rent, freedom from having to worry about feeding yourself, freedom from having to work at an oppressive job you don't like, freedom from worry over health care. And when you get into a positive rights worldview, that's extremely antithetical to the, kind of Rothbardian view of rights. So those two things are pretty hard to reconcile. And I would say that it's more important, or at least a more efficient, better use of limited time and resources and manpower to be talking about how we might separate ourselves politically along the lines of people who are in greater agreement with us and trying to persuade the whole world of our Rothbardian program.
0: Yeah. My response to what you just said here, and, and I... I'm torn and I can just go sort of explain why here and you can respond to it. I understand the attitude behind this because it's reflected as a, I mean, in a sense, it's almost like a libertarian colonialism. It's, is a bad thing. Like, it's like, oh, we need to make the world a libertarian place under a potentially one world government that's libertarian and that's not going to work. Right. And I would agree with that. At the same time, the spirit of what this is communicating in my mind kind of feels like you don't care to be blunt, kind of feels like you don't care if other people have liberty, which I know isn't really true. But it's like, well, Jeff, don't you want the Chinese people to have a conception of liberty that you and I share? Because that's actually what's going to bring about human flourishing. <laughs> yes. So how do they get that without us doing it for them? Obviously, I'm saying <laughs> that somewhat rhetorically <laughs> to set you up for the answer. But I want other people to experience the human flourishing that we know freedom, freedom in our notion of freedom, freedom actually brings. And so it just seems like the program to get there is not the colonial program, to use that word. Well, if
1: you do believe that everybody ought to have the same kind of program politically if they are to flourish, I think the answer to your question is to set an example, right? It's not to fight China over Taiwan. It's to set an example so that Chinese people can see that. And and, you know, you have to wonder, what do the Chinese people want? Again, maybe their conception of liberty is very different from mine. And I would hasten to add that China is an authoritarian state, but it does have certain freedoms. Even we don't have, like, you can just open up your little shop on the street and start cooking noodles and sell those to people, and, when, and without a license or a permit. And when Steve Wynn went to Macaw to open his casinos, he was shocked when he had purchased some land, you know, he didn't have to go through any regulatory process. He didn't have to ask 10 million people. He was just able to build a casino. He actually wrote about this. Yeah. He was like, wow, I can't believe I just bought this property and I just built the casino and that's it. So it's easy for us to say, oh my <laughs> gosh, in America, we're so much here.
0: Yeah, who do I ask to set this up? Oh wait, nobody? I just go ahead and do it? Yeah. <laughs> this feels weird. Yeah. I wouldn't want to live in China. I wouldn't want to be under the Chinese
1: state. And I suspect that In their hearts, a lot of Chinese folks wouldn't either. So I I certainly understand the impulse. And it's a benevolent impulse to say, hey, look, it's awful what's happening in China. And if we could liberate those people, we ought to do so. I don't think most Americans would support invading China or getting into some military conflict to liberate them, so-called. But yes, I understand that impulse. I just think that we have our own problems in the West, let's just say, at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise, it reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. And evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com. You click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about border restrictions. And you have a quote in the book. Well, it's really a short here thing. It's like, The question over borders is really who gets to decide who gets to come here. And obviously, many libertarians disagree. And there's a variation or a spectrum of open borders advocates that are literally no borders versus more open than they are now. And let's just see what happens kind of open borders people. Where are you on it? And how would you describe what libertarians should advocate for?
1: Well, I actually do a roundtable in the book between some of the more extreme positions like Walter Block. So I'm not for open borders as that term is used as a colloquialism in the sense of just anyone can come to the United States tomorrow because I think that would be disastrous. Conceptually, I think there's a difference between the right to leave a place and the right to enter a place. If you can't leave a place, that implies either slavery or false imprisonment. Uh But entering a place, I think, is a different question. I'm also struck by the idea that is the question who got here first? It's sometimes strange to me when open borders, folks, libertarians or not, start talking about, let's say, Native American, Native Indians in the U.S. having superior rights to immigrants. And you say, well, well, okay, but if that's true, then why wouldn't a Mexican arriving in 2023 have inferior rights to a white person whose family arrived in 1900? That always strikes me as a strange argument. Yeah. It also strikes me as, as a form of Wealth stripping. In other words, if the United States gets all the best and brightest people from around the world, people with capital, people with intelligence, people with advanced degrees, the kind of immigrant that most countries want to attract, that also means India doesn't have those people anymore, for example. China doesn't have those people anymore. It's just funny to me. And I don't want to analogize volitional humans to inanimate resources, but we would be soundly criticized if we were pulling natural resources out of the third world and bring them, you know, that would be neo-colonialism. But drawing human resources to America, that's just all well and good. So no, I think open borders would be a bad idea. And I don't think it's necessarily the libertarian conclusion. That's why in the book, I explore some really hardcore open borders arguments and some non-open borders arguments presented by people within the libertarian sphere. But here's where I think maybe left libertarians, open borders people might agree is, how about if we leave people alone and see what they do? We have a word for that. It's called markets. Uh-huh. And so we have multicultural, distinctly multicultural cities and areas in the world. Dubai would certainly qualify as one. Singapore would qualify as one, although you have the Chinese Malay issue there. But nonetheless, I think people might... Form all kinds of arrangements, some of them might form ethnic enclaves, and some of them might form exceedingly multicultural city states but nonetheless, if you look at the most multicultural places on earth, they tend to have a pretty strong, maybe even authoritarian criminal code backing things up and maintaining order so I, I don't just accept the framing of the left that multiculturalism is inherently good and always works great for everybody, right but the borders argument is very, very fraught. And all I can say is my article, which I believe is included in the book, which is called Market Borders or something like
0: that, yeah, sort of yep. sums up my view on it. Okay. Well, you know, I think I would agree that the market should decide, right? I mean, if we're libertarians, if we're free market libertarians, heavily free market libertarians, but I can't separate how do you let the market decide when the state is controlling who isn't allowed to come across an arbitrary line. Like, it seems like, That open borders in the sense of like, you know, high permissiveness, except for if you're dangerous or whatever, which I realize there's problems with that limitation as well. But by and large, it seems to me that open borders is a free market position.
1: Well, it depends on who's controlling land and property. Vast, vast swaths of America, including all kinds of coastline, ports of entry, airports, seaways ports themselves, seaports, not to mention just vast amounts of interior land are actually owned and controlled by the federal government. So I think that absolutely changes the calculation. The idea that private property owners should be allowed to decide where people go, well, okay, I agree with that, but what about so-called public or government property? How do we make decisions
0: about that? That's a very tough question for anybody to answer neatly. Right. But I would say that if we were to advocate the sort of abolition of federal control over immigration, that would then go to, I guess, the states and maybe even localities. And maybe states would make their own arrangements, like maybe Texas and Arizona and New Mexico might make their own agreement, whereas California might be something else. But in my mind, in terms of from the federal perspective, is open borders, it's just a state's rights borders situation at that point.
1: Well, it's more than that. It's also a private property issue. Well, I guess tell
0: me your critique. Yeah, the core critique. OK, I would say that for me, getting the federal government out of the border restriction policy would probably be a fair direction to go or at least lift a lot of limitations on immigration and give more power back to the states and let the states decide what they want to do with that. So Texas could implement a extremely local property rights and let, you know, all counties decide what they want to do with immigrants. and. New Mexico and California might do something completely different and say, you know what, everyone's welcome because, well, that's California, right? So it seems to me that open borders, okay, maybe I'm just kind of coming to realize this, that the concept of open borders in my mind is more about what does the United States federal government, what right do they have to tell immigrants from other countries what to do? And that should be decided more local -er, to use that silly phrase that I said earlier, that seems more market-oriented than what's happening now. And I'll let you respond at that point. No, absolutely. I agree with everything you just said. All right. Well, great. I'm really happy to hear that. (laughs) Okay. So you're saying that, well, obviously, I mean, I know who I'm talking to here. You want the federal government out of everything. So, but it just, in my mind, I think most libertarians who are in favor of open borders would essentially say that that's the direction they would want to see. I guess maybe they want to see the federal government still involved and make the states keep their borders open. Maybe that's where you would differ from them, right?
1: Well, yeah, I think that is. But more importantly, I think there'd be an immediate humanitarian crisis if anyone could come to the United States tomorrow from anywhere on Earth, enter and stay. I mean, an awful lot of people around the world would find a way here, I think. And we would have vast tent cities, I think, like we have in downtown LA, but we'd have them in other parts of the country as well. And I think even Brian Kaplan, an open borders advocate, has talked about this. So it's not costless. I mean, that's the problem. Sure. this debate is that there are trade-offs, okay? There are trade-offs, and what makes people better off is subjective, is highly subjective. Open borders advocates will often talk about the economic benefits of an increasing population or the economic productivity of immigrants as to GDP and this and that, but that's not, okay, that in and of itself, that's an economic argument, but whether people feel better off in America or whether they determine themselves to be better off is subjective, and that goes beyond mere economics they may not like the changes that come along with things so we have to be careful when we say like well okay here's the not the theoretical but the practical arguments in favor of immigration it brings all these economic benefits that's true but it also brings a lot of dislocation and rapid cultural changes and other things and so would you accept an open borders regime if it meant for example that christianity became a tiny minority position of the population of America. In other words, most immigrants weren't Christians and the demographic shifted very quickly and Christianity became a tiny
0: 10% belief or worldview in America. Would that be okay with you? I'll give two parts to a response. One is, well, if that's what the market demands, I guess I really should kind of go along with that. And that's sort of a tongue-in-cheek answer. The actual answer for me Would be, I think that would depend on the legal structure of what's going on. Like, does being a minority of under 10% as a Christian or as a religious subgroup or whatever, does that immediately or inherently involve some form of inferiority or cultural suppression or some sort of governmental inability to speak truth to power or participate in local democracy? So, if we're in a very federalized, decentralized, Situation and there's freedom of movement, you might end up with the Christians in those societies saying, Well, we're all just going to move to Texas. I'm just going to pick on Texas for now, or we'll all move to these certain areas. So, am I okay with it? I don't know. I mean, it's definitely a hypothetical that I haven't thought of, and it's a really good one because it is, you're right, it is not a costless position to take. Well, it's a costless position if it's never going to happen, but. I understand what you're saying is like making the move to an actual open borders, anybody can come here next week is not without its costs. And I think it'll be, you were right, it would probably be with a lot of unforeseen costs that we didn't think about. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, Jeff, <laughs> I really enjoy having this conversation. I think decentralization is insanely important right now because I feel like that is where we can focus our political energies and get back power from those who have colonized our individual rights to kind of bring up a trope from this conversation. I appreciate you joining us. Where can people purchase your book? Where's the best place to get that?
1: They can go to mises.org, to the bookstore there, or they can go to Amazon. It's called A Strange Liberty. It's available at both places. Excellent. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks a million. I appreciate it.